Hello everyone, this is me Tom and of course with my other host Nick. Hey. And today we're going to be talking about the topic of particular redemption, otherwise known as limited atonement. Uh, and today we're going to be just discussing this issue of how effectual is Christ's death on the cross? What did it actually do? And did who did he die for and how did his work how is it actuated like how is it actually completed and i want to start off with john 3:16 talking about of course the most popular verse in the whole entire modern world right now probably for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life right john 3:16 is probably the most popular and well-known biblical phraseology that's out there, especially in the United States. Um, Tim Tebow had it painted across his face. Um, it's all over posters and bumper stickers. And it is the very popular or choice verse that a lot of people use in the discussion in regards to limited atonement. Now, uh, before we get into what that verse means, I think we should define some terms. Yeah. Um, because... I mean, a lot of a lot of people hear hear the the word atonement and perhaps don't understand the aspects of its definition. So here we go. Uh, what is the atonement and why is it limited? So the atoning work of Christ is his sinless life and his death and him choosing to die for a particular group of people. Um, God will punish every sin that's ever been committed in this world. Mm-hmm. And the punishment for the sin is simply referred to as the wrath of God. And so only Jesus has lived a sinless life and therefore is capable of receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. And he becomes the substitute for anyone who trusts in him and believes. Uh, the uh, theological terminology for this particular discussion or this uh, definition would be penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning like the law, the penal code, right? The specific like rules penalty. of the law, the penalty. Substitutionary, obviously, he is a substitute. And the atonement is the receiving on the behalf of someone the wrath of God. In other words, a payment for a particular event or crime. And so Jesus, in fact, receives the wrath of God on the ba- behalf of someone. And where we start asking questions in the Christian point of view is on the behalf of who? And if you're going back to John 3.16, a lot of people that disagree with particular redemption would say that it says that whosoever, and in the beginning it says, for God loved who? The world. The world refers there to the cosmos, the entire world as in the globe, the universe, and People say, well, if Christ died for the entire universe, it says so in John 3.16, uh, then Christ, in fact, did die. If, if, if God so loved the entire world, didn't he die for the whole entire world? And therefore, everyone was died for by Christ. And a simple refutation would be the fact that in Revelation, when there's a description of heaven, the the passage is read about 
all the tribes, tongues, and nations. I believe it's Revelation 7. It's talking about the great multitude. Oh yeah, 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, and standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms and branches in their hands. This is talking about the redeemed church. And clearly, it's not the whole world because it says a great multitude from every nation. So, when Christ is talking about the whole world, it doesn't mean that it's every single individual of every single person that lives on the globe. Just like we were talking before, the Pharisees said they the whole world is coming after him, right? That wasn't the case. It was just a lot of people in Judea and Samaria and the surrounding towns. Yeah. That's John twelve nineteen, same right, same book. And it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And obviously the Pharisees uh, aren't talking about every single person, right? That was in India. That was in, you know, in Europe. Yeah, just Not every single individual person. Just like when John was baptizing everybody, that all of Jerusalem came down to be baptized. Or I believe all of Judea, right? Did every single person know? So world words like world and all can be used in particular context. cases and context. And we have to look at, at the context to determine what in fact and even in John three sixteen it's the whole the people who believe from the world, not the entire world as in every single individual and yeah. every single person. Now, um, people get really upset with the word limited right it seems very unfair that christ would die for some and not others and that's essentially what uh, limited atonement is saying right that there is a limit to christ's atonement that it doesn't get applied effectually for every single person on every single on, on the earth every single you know decade every single for ex- for history millennia christ didn't imply his death for every single individual and the reality of that would be the fact that there are people in hell. And so those people who are in hell, Christ did not die for. Right? A universalist would believe that every single person in the existence of this world, since creation to Christ's second coming, right, all those people were in fact atoned for by Christ and there is no one in hell. And that reality is broken easily by the fact that hell does in fact exist and people will in fact go to hell. And so the next assumption is, well, how is it limited? We, we, we as Christians have to agree that Christ's atonement is limited, case in point, people in hell. It didn't apply to them. And the question is, well, in what way, why is the atonement limited? Now, essentially, there are kind of two contrasting views. One would be that the limitation of Christ's atonement happens to be because of the human being which chooses to believe, right? This is called the provisional atonement. And it's defined loosely as Christ died making it possible for anyone to believe or to be saved. And it becomes effectual. Christ's atonement becomes effectual. His sacrifice for the wrath of God becomes effectual to you upon you choosing to believe in him. Mm-hmm. So these people would say that the limit of Christ's atonement, the the ability of him to save, 
stops with you. When you choose to believe, now you have been effectually atoned for. And so that's one view. The other view is definite atonement, which is classically considered limited atonement in the you know, acrostic tulip, the L. And it's defined as Christ died for the elect. And every single person and every single sin that he had elected, he found before the foundation of the world, died and purchased. Right? We have that verse that speaks of the fact that the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth and Peter. And it was it was Christ's mission to redeem the elect people that the Father had chosen. So this brings up a vast array of discussions in regards to particularly the fairness of Christ dying for only the elect. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about that, like, what do you exactly mean the effect? Like, in what terms? Effective? Yeah. If it's effective? Yeah, so there is a discussion in regards to, we we all agree that Christ's atonement is limited as Christians. Its limit is to those who are saved and those who are in hell. They're, you know, they have been, they're not, it hasn't been effectuated for them, meaning it didn't affect them to the point of salvation. Now, a provisionist or someone who believes that Christ died for every single person in the world um, would say that the reason it's not effective is because they chose not to believe. It was available. Christ's atonement is actually, in fact, available. He died for the entire world. No one in particular, but the entire world as a group. And the people who choose to believe in Christ are those who are, in fact, accepting salvation and forgiveness and those who will be saved. And those who reject Christ, yes, Christ did die for them, but it wasn't effective for them because they chose not to believe. The limit of Christ's atonement happened to be in their belief. If they don't believe, then Christ's atonement is limited. Which brings up... Uh, difficulty with when we run into scriptures like um, Romans 8 34 it's the closing remarks of Romans 8 Romans 9 is all about election but Romans 8 34 says this who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us so not only does the high priest, in the Old Testament, not only does the high priest kill the animal, have the scapegoat go out into the wilderness, but also he enters the Holy of Holies and sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. And this is a picture of what Christ actually comes and does. He is the lamb who is slain for the redemption of those who believe in him. But his redemption, is, his atonement doesn't stop there. He, in fact, is raised from the dead on the third day, proclaiming to all that, in fact, the atonement was sufficient and it was, it worked. Like, Christ actually paid for our sins. Death couldn't hold him. And after that, he ascends to the Father and he intercedes for us day and night. We also see this in um, Hebrews 7.25. 
consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through God, sorry, to God through him, since he always lives, making intercession for them. So here's the question to the people who believe that Christ died for everybody in the entire world. Every single individual, right? The people groups of, of the world, the cosmos. One, if Christ died for them, does he also intercede for them? If you say yes, then you, in your theology, say that Christ intercedes for those who are in hell. Now, I don't know how that works theologically, because in, in, in any any biblical form, it doesn't work. You have to admit, because and there is no split in Romans um, 8, 34. It's a continuous verse, right? It says, he died for them, he rose, and then he constantly intercedes for the same people group. Mm-hmm. So, the same people group for whom he died, he also intercedes. And Christ does not intercede for those who are in hell. Because why? They are under the wrath of God. Prior to this, I did state that Christ, I mean God, God the Father, will, in fact, punish every sin. Will. It's definite. It's not maybe he will, maybe he won't. Like God the Father will, in fact, pour out his wrath on every single person who has committed sin. Mm-hmm. He does it in two, one of two ways. Either he pours it out on, on the substitution who is Christ, or he po- pours it out on the sinner who deserves justly the punishment for his sin. And so, those are the only two ways Christ, I mean God, Christ pours out his wrath. Wrath of the Lamb, right? In Revelation. It is either on him and he is the substitute or it's on you because you deserve the just wrath of God and Christ does not intercede for those for whom the wrath of God has been poured out he does not stand and plea for their case because there's no case to plea for and so that is a difficulty that I don't see someone who says well Christ died for all human beings can overcome that's a scriptural barrier that's too difficult to overcome in my view now this is a difficult truth to accept, right? Like, it is difficult to emotionally accept that Christ died for a specific group of people because the resounding possible answer would be like, well, that's not fair. How is it fair that Christ only dies for some and not for others? And this brings up three categories. God can either die for... I mean, God, God the Father and Jesus Christ can die and save only three categories. One being the entire world, right? Universalism. Christ can actually come and die and save, and everyone goes to heaven. Every single person. Option number two is Christ saves no one because we all deserve the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And so if he, if Christ does not come down as the pure Lamb of God and save any human, we justly deserve hell. That's option number two. And option number three is Christ dies for some and not for others. And the only option in which God the Father has the freedom to exercise his wrath and his mercy is when he dies and elects some and not others. Some people would point to um, 2 Peter in regards to a discrepancy that they hold, where they see that there's a contradiction with this theology, and they see Scripture contradicts this. And uh, there, there are a lot of other passages, but this is one that particularly is mentioned a lot of times, so I'd like to go over it. 
Again, that's 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. But do not overlook, but do not overlook on this fact, beloved, that with God one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that you should reach repentance. Sorry, but all should reach repentance. So, people say this. God clearly says that he doesn't wish that any should perish. Here it says will that any should perish. Wishing will, the same phraseology, and I'm just reading a different version, but it's speaking of the will of God. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And people say, see, God clearly doesn't wish any should perish. He must have died for all. This brings up a discussion about the wills of God, and I'll I'll define three wills of God, and we can see from the context of yeah. the passage which which one fits better. One, will, will you do that? Yeah, will he do that? No, will you do that? Yeah, I will. Will. Okay. Great joke, Tom. <laughs> um. So one aspect of God's will, or one will that God possesses, is his decretive will, meaning that whatever he decides to write the story of this world in history will happen. He decided that the world will begin, and so he spoke it into existence. He decided that Abraham would be born, and so Abraham was born, right? In other words, God writes the story of history. He says things, and they come to pass. That's his decree. Another is his prescriptive will, or some people say his um, preceptive will, his precepts. Those things he prescribes to human beings to fulfill, such as the Ten Commandments, right? Do not murder. Do not murder. Is it God's will that you should not murder? Not you in particular, Tom, but to to humanity, that they shall not murder. Yeah. And yet people murder, right? Thou shall not lie, and yet people lie. And that's something God wants and proclaims and prescribes for human beings to obey, and yet they have the ability to forfeit God's will in that regard. Number three would be God's um, detonation of his emotions. It's an anthropomorphic kind of description of God's will. Anthropomorphic means humanized, a way in which human beings can understand. It is his emotional will. When it talks uh, will. about, you know, in the Old Testament, and God felt, God repented that he had made man, or that he felt sorry that he had felt that he made man. Yes. It is It is an emotional um Feeling. Hebrewic, Hebrewic way, in order to describe how God could somehow you know relate to humanity. Yeah, <laughs> um, we see we can, an example would be, you know, uh, if a judge sentences his son, someone who's dear and close to him, for a crime that he's committed. In order to be a just judge, he must, pers- or decree that his son is going to jail. That's one will the judge, and yet his heart aches because it's in fact his son, right? So God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he must punish them for their sin, right? Um, Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, and God is the one who pours out his wrath and sends people to hell. Fear not the one who could destroy, destroy the body, but fear him who could destroy the body and throw the cell into everlasting hell. 
That's a paraphrase of that verse. Not specific. But we understand those are the three wills of God. And so, if I were to interpret this verse according to the preceding verses, Peter's clearly talking about the elect here. And he's saying that God has decreed it's his sovereign good and pleasure that he will that all the elect will persevere and that all shall come to repentance. Right? And so this it talks about all? Yes. Well, it says any. Any yeah. of which people group, right? When it says any, any of the redeemed, any of the elect, any of the Israelites, any of this particular nation, any of the entire cosmos, the world. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Because you just read the context of Second Peter three nine, right? And just you'll notice that it talks about, you know, this concept of people seeing like when is the Lord coming? And then it talks about well the day of you know, the a day is like a thousand, you know, a thousand years for the Lord. Um you know, so the, in the reader's mind it's like when is the Lord coming? And that's where the the writer, Peter, he's he's making a case, hey, God is God is not slack, you know. He's waiting, you know, it's not for him God is like knows exactly when everything's going to happen. So it's not like it's not like he's just like waiting, he's like out of you know, he's not sure when people are going to come come and repent. No, he knows when every single person that he wants to save will come to him. And that's when he's that's when Christ is going to come back. And also, you mentioned God's knowledge. Uh, there is a difficulty over getting, because fundamentally, the reason people, someone would reject the fact that Christ died for, only for some and not others, is their innate knowledge of who God is. Mm-hmm. They view God as someone who's fair, just, and loving, and it doesn't seem fair, just, or loving for Christ to die only for the elect. It seems unfair. It seems cruel and unloving. Right, and so a phrase that I've written down, uh, and a lot of people would say, it says God loves all people and is not willing that any should perish. Right, that seems like a very Christian phrase. But what does it really mean? Right, one is that statement true? Is is that statement true? Is this statement that God loves all people and is not willing that any should perish true? In one sense, yes. What is it? depending on how you define love. Does does God love the Israelites whom he took out of slavery through ten plagues and opened the Red Sea for as they crossed? Does he love them as much as he loves the Egyptians on whom he collapsed the Red Sea and drowned? No. Clearly, by, by the works and the actions of God, God loves the Israel people. God does not love the Egyptians the same way. So it's not true that God loves people, all people, in the same way. Yeah, and then it stems back to, you know, did the Israelites deserve to be loved by God any more than the Egyptians? And God says no. In fact, in the Old Testament, I believe it's Deuteronomy or Numbers or Exodus, I don't, one of the five books, I'll, I'll pull it up. Um, God says, God is speaking with Moses and he says, I did not choose you because you're the most mighty of nations that you're the most of number or the most of number, but I chose you because of my promise to Abraham. In other words, God is saying, I'm the one who decided to pick you from the multitude of nations. 
and you have no special, unique, attractive attribute which I have put my eyes upon. Number two, willing. We talked about the three three wills that God possesses. Is he willing emotionally that it's his good pleasure that all the men that go to hell go to hell? No. Back to reference real quick. Tom is showing me that. Deuteronomy 7, 7. Tom, you want to read it real quick? Yeah. Uh, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. And But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yes. And, again, God is not willing that any should perish. Did God decree, meaning is his decree that will, does he will that some should perish? We must say yes to that because there are people in hell. And God decreed that there would be people in hell because there are. Does God prescribe that people should go to hell? No. He prescribes the law and he prescribes repentance, right? He prescribes repentance through which you come to faith in Christ and the law of God to see and act and live according to his will. And number three, does God desire emotionally? Does he look upon with pleasure the death of the wicked? No. Right? So we could see, depending on how you define, is God willing that any should perish? You can come up with three different definitions of that. Lastly, is God all-knowing? And this really bumps into people's view of who God is and the true attributes of who God is. People think that, well, God must love everybody and he must have died for everybody. And yet God is all-knowing. If God is all-knowing, he knows every single lie, every single sin we will commit. He knows the day you're going to die. He knows before you were born if you go to hell or not. And so we must confirm that before the foundation of the world, God knew you individually. And God has placed his story into your into into your life. Whether you like it or not, that's what the def that's what the definition of God is. He knows all things from beginning to end. There's no change or glimpse of change in him. Um, and a lot of people are so perturbed about about this particular attribute of God that they become open theists. What open theism means is God is constantly learning and trying to catch up with what history is going to do. He he foretells the future like a analyst would foretell the future, mm -hmm. right? The interest rates are going up. That means stock prices are going to drop. That's the view of God people have in his knowledge, where biblically we see that the reason God knows everything is because he decreed in his providence that those things will happen. In other words, he's the one who wrote the story. And so he knows the story because he's the one who wrote it. He's the author. So, yeah, the only consi other consistent, you're saying, view would be open theism. Yes. Meaning God is constantly learning and does not, in fact, know all things. Uh, lastly, who can resist his will? If God desires to save, if God is in fact sovereign, the, the judge of all the earth who decrees all things, you can't resist him. 
And in fact, if you if you say that no, Christ died for all, and the only thing that's stronger than the decree of God is man standing there with his will. And if he will not come to Christ, there's there's no atomic bomb, there's no supernova that could jolt him to salvation. It is, it is man standing there with his own free omnipotent will, and he could decide either to follow Christ or reject Christ. And though Christ may hearken, though Christ may show him, if man so chooses, he can reject God. In other words, the thing that could resist, or the person who can resist God's will, is the ma- will of man. And I find that um, extremely unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it, it demolishes God's freedom to save for his own eternal purposes. So wrapping up or continuing, I guess Whoa. to wrap up that, that portion, um, God wills to save whom he does. And we could actually talk about the relationship that Christ has with the father and the Holy spirit and how that relates in the plan of redemption. But, um, Christ died for a specific people group because that was God's God the Father's intention to do so. It was it was purposeful that Christ died for only the elect. And it 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 really coincides beautifully in Trinity where we see the consistency in the character of God and in the persons of God, right? God the Father elects a people group for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He sends his son, and in obedience, Christ dies for those who the Father elected. He then is resurrected, proclaiming to everybody that he, in fact, is God. He conquered death and sin. And he is interceding before the Father on the behalf of those whom he died for now. The Holy Spirit, the vicar of Christ, the replacement for Christ on this earth, the one who has been sent from the Father to live and inhabit all those who believe, is now in the business of redeeming and resurrecting and giving new hearts to those for whom Christ died. And he will continue doing so until the day that Christ comes, right, in his in His final judgment. And so we see the consistency there. It is not as though God the Father elected some. Christ then dies for all being inconsistent with the Father's will. Mm-hmm. And then the Holy Spirit wars with the will of man, hoping possibly that he can redeem those for whom Christ died. And the Holy Spirit fails, you know, every single time a soul goes to hell, the Holy Spirit failed to redeem that person because it was the will of God that none should perish, that that person perished and the will of God could not overcome his unbelief. And so, the consistency in limited atonement is through the entire Godhead. God the Father elects the same people for whom Christ dies. The same people are regenerated. Um, we find this specific um, kind of line or lineage, uh, train of thought, in John 6 when Jesus is speaking. And he, and, he, and he speaks in this way, I am the bread of life. Whosoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whosoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you, you have not seen me yet. You who have seen me yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me, to me, and whoever comes to me, 
I will never cast out. I will, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me, speaking of the will of the Father to save the elect. And on this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gives me, but -hmm. will raise it up on the last day, referring to the glorification of all the saints for whom he died. And so, if you were purchased by Christ, you will be persevering through life, and you will be held in his hand, and you will, in fact, be raised in the last day in glory. The same people group. What would you say in response to people that, um, you know, say, for example, like this verse, um, uh, Romans 11.32, For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. Mm. What does all mean there? Right? We talked about that. Yeah. Because if it goes to, sh- if it means he had mercy on every single person, wouldn't all people be saved? That would seem to be consistent, right, with the thought process. If Christ, or if God the Father has mercy on all, then none should up in heaven. We're, we, we again become universalists. But I believe Romans 11 is talking about the Israelites in the context of their unbelief and the grafting in of the Gentiles. And uh, Paul is speaking there and says, you Gentiles who boast in your redemption recognize that the Israelites were cut off from the stem. Is that is that is that what it's referring to? Romans 11? I don't want to get wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's talking Pretty about much. the specific people group in Israel. Right, so it's not talking about salvation in regards to all of redemption. He's talking about Israel and how they were cut off. And for those not to boast who are the Gentiles now have been grafted in because because of their unbelief, you too Gentiles, if you boast, fear God that you may be cut off as well. Um, what do you think? One more, another verse. Uh, Second Peter Two fifteen, I think. Read it. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So it says, even the false prophets, that they're denying the master who bought them, so it's referring to the fact that a and, uh, and like Christ actually atoned and purchased these people, right? And yeah. then they're all de- they're denying him. Yeah, because people would bring up the that master means like the same thing in Revelation where it's talking about Christ. Yeah, let me pull it up real quick. I actually did not look up that verse. So, uh, which which one is it again? Second Peter. Two one, and and then it says fifteen also. I don't know if it's. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master 
who bought who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will go there is sen- and many will follow their sensuality and become and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed their greed and all and their greed they will exploit you and with this their false words their condemnation from long ago does not lie idle and their destruction is not asleep so we have a problem here one the text says there's a master who bought them and they're not denying him and yet further on just in the next couple of chapters I mean couple of verses it says their destruction from long ago their their condemnation from long ago does is not idle right so either we have a contradiction in verses or we have to harmonize because one it's saying there is in fact master Christ who had atoned and paid for their sins and now they're denying him mm-hmm. and so they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction meaning they are they are being damned to hell and just a couple of verses later it says that their destruction or their condemnation is from long ago prior to any of this occurring it has been foreordained and their destruction is not sleep and if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and condemn, condemned sorry committed them to chains and gloomy darkness to keep until judgment if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood among the entire world of the ungodly if by turning cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example what is to happen to the ungodly yeah. and if he rescued so so here so bought you could it could even it probably could not even mean salvation right well, yes, I think it does mean salvation. Because some have, uh, Reformed teachers have said that the bot could mean a whole different thing to where it's like, to purchase, you know, like... Which is to atone, which is to pay the, pay the uh, certificate of debt. I think, I think in this context, it does in fact mean they are denying the master who purchased them. Now... Later on, it gives us three examples of which we can follow. One, there's a people group. And the people group proclaimed to be the sons of God. And guess what? Only Noah is saved through the ark. Right? Mm -hmm. Then there's the angels who are all God's people. I mean, God's angels. Until they sin and disobey and they are punished. And there's only a specific group who are to remain with, with with God. Then we jump to Sodom and Gomorrah. Only Lot is saved from the destruction. So, I would, I would look upon those three examples that clarify the text and say, what the text is actually talking about is the church. And Christ did in fact purchase the church, his bride. He paid for his bride and he died for her. Mm-hmm. But just like Paul says, not all of Israel are Israel. There will be some who rise among them who are part of the people group for which Christ died who have not been genuinely re- re- redeemed. And it's referring to the to the 
visible church, right? We all see the church every Sunday, but we can't guarantee that those all those people are saved. And the reason I'm bringing up this thought process is because of the three examples that Peter gives right afterward. All of God's angels, all of a sudden, some rebel. All of God's people, all of a sudden, Noah's the only one left. Mm-hmm. Solomon and Gomorrah, wicked, and yet right, Lot has remained righteous and he, he is saved. And so there's a clear people group and then particular people fall away. And so, yes. Well, that's where people would say, yeah, Christ bought them. And then it was up to them whether they wanted to accept that payment or not. Yeah, and people would say that, but they're ignoring the fact that their um, destruction is from, or their condemnation is from long ago. That verse is in there, referencing the fact that their condemnation has been proclaimed long ago prior to Mm -hmm. their actions. And so we see this dichotomy. And again, every time we run across difficult passages, we always have to harmonize and look at context. Yeah. It's also... um, uh, I've found an article from Desiring God, and the person writing talks about how there's like three large ambiguities. Mm -hmm. It talks about first, it is unclear whether... The purchase of these false teachers is a reference to death of Christ or not. Second, it is unclear whether the one who bought them is even Christ or simply the Father. Third, it is unclear whether Peter is speaking according to reality or appearance. Mm. Well, I think I think the latter is the one I went with. Yeah. Meaning everyone appears to be part of the church, but all of a sudden, the bride who's been purchased starts getting purified. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best way to harmonize the scripture. Again, I could be wrong. I'm not a theologian. But the third option seems the best. Fitting, fitting, at least fitting the examples. There seems to be a group of people in which there's distinction made between two. It reminds me of, uh, remember that Hebrews passage we're talking about losing salvation? Yes. Where it's like, they were enlightened. Yeah, you know? they have tasted the... Um, the gift. Know, the, the word of God. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they are unbelievers. I Yeah, and so that's the same um, feeling I get, right? Uh, the same kind of attributes in those in those scriptures as well, where they are part of the people group. They are in the visible church. Everyone is coming to church on Sunday, and yet people start falling away. In the same way that, you know, the angels, isn't he, then talk about the, the false teacher and the angels? Yes, Angels, Noah, and Sodom, Gomorrah. Yeah. You know, the angels obviously felt and experienced God's goodness in the same way that people can be in God's presence in the church service. They could feel the presence. They could experience the heavenly gift. But they end end up leaving and being, you know, Shown, shown who they truly are. Yeah, and rebelling you know? against God. Yeah, I, and you you almost threw me off in this patch because I didn't prepare. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's let's do some exegesis on the fly. But um, and, and that's that's the case sometimes where we run into scriptures that seem to contradict the verses above, right? And if you're an unbeliever, you say, well, there we go, proof that Scripture contradicts itself, and yet if you harmonize and you look at context, that's, you're capable of coming up with the, the proper 
understanding of scripture. That's what I find appealing or attractive about Reformed theologians is that they, I think, want to be very consistent. Well, that, that, is, that is the cry for limited atonement. Consistency in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Consistency of the elect being saved, being redeemed, being glorified, and ju- being, being in heaven, right? There's, there's a consistency there where God is not contradicting himself, where God is not failing to save some for whom Christ died. Yeah. 